It's pretty amazing when you think about what we did. We filmed American wildlife. Mm -hmm. All of it. Frogs, snakes, mice, birds. Yeah, there were eagles and there were moose and there were grizzly bears and there was all this stuff. But there were bunny rabbits and squirrels and every kind of little bird and hummingbirds and salamanders and stuff. Let's face it. I mean, Wild Kingdom and Jacques Cousteau and Walt Disney, none of them were putting salamanders on television. Right. None of them were putting grasshopper mice, the so-called killer mice, on television. Uh, they just weren't. Hello, I'm Marty Stauffer, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. We have a real legend in the uh, in the world of film documentaries. Uh, if you are my age, um, you may remember Marty Stauffer from Wild America. Marty Stauffer's Wild America. It was an incredible program. He um, did documentaries on all types of wildlife and he was doing it on American wildlife. And it was interesting because at the time you had Jacques Cousteau going to the deepest parts of the ocean. You had, you had uh, mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom going to these crazy uh, faraway destinations to film exotic species and stuff. People had never seen before. And those were obviously very, very popular shows. Meanwhile, Marty Stauffer decided he was going to film American wildlife, moose, bison, elk, grizzly bears, but he also didn't just concentrate on big game animals. He did everything, salamanders, little mice, anything that was interesting. And he managed to make some really, really incredible 
television shows called Marty Stauffer's Wild America. Uh, someone asked me on the text thread. You can also do this if you would like to. You can text me at 305-930-7346, and you could give me show suggestions. This is exactly where this one came from. Somebody said, I think you ought to track down Marty Stauffer and see if you could get him on the on the show. And sure enough, that's exactly what I did. I was like, Marty Stauffer, there's a name I haven't thought of in a long time. I loved that show growing up. And sure enough, contacted him. He was happy to do it. And he can tell some stories. He can tell a lot of stories. And that's what we're about to do. We're about to listen to a lot of stories from Marty Stauffer. So I want to thank you for the suggestion and stand by for a podcast, which goes over all kinds of stuff about how uh, early film documentaries were made, including linear editing, which, oh my gosh, what an incredibly laborious process this was compared to, you guys don't know how easy you got it, just just editing something on your iPhone. It's so easy. It's so easy. And the quality's so high. He was carrying hundreds of pounds worth of equipment up there, and then that was just the beginning of, of what it takes to make a... a a documentary from film. It's really a different world, a completely different world. So if you're interested in film documentaries, you're interested in in Marty Stauffer, stand by, get ready. Here we go. All right, Marty Stauffer. Man, thank you for being on the podcast. This is a I got to say, man, it's a it's a it's an honor and I'm I'm a fan. I've watched your stuff growing up and it probably had a lot to do with me becoming a television producer of my own. Um, but man, it's, it's awesome to, uh, to have you here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I could, I could say something, uh, cute, like, well, I guess that shows that there's not a great barrier to entry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and you know, Tom, the funny thing is what I say really about the, the beginning in my entire career, but the beginning of the wild America series. And when we first, uh, you know, got it on television, well, we began before that, actually. We did a couple of John Denver specials with my brother, Mark Stauffer. Oh, I did really the way that I got into the business was doing films that were sold educationally to schools and libraries. But I'll come back to that because what I was just getting ready to say was, uh, and this is really a, a, a shout out to all the young people out there, or, you know, people who, you know, wannabes who'd like to make something, you know, make some kind of video film these days, of course, is pretty much all video, um, is that the only reason I was as successful as I am is because I didn't know that I was not supposed to be able to do what it was that I was going to do. <laughs> It was, you know, I mean, if you look, if you look back, here's some young kid from Arkansas. Um, I was a little more than a kid at the time, but we'd made super eight movies, eight millimeter movies and super eight movies, goofy little things, uh, you know, just to show to our friends. And we, we really just learned by doing. And, uh, and like I said, the, the, as, as the time went on, time went on. You know, you need to decide whether you're going to be a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever. Well, I decided that I wanted to be an attorney. (laughs) Now, the reason I wanted to be an attorney, a friend of mine, Pete Daly, his father, Jack Daly, was an attorney in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where we grew up. Uh, They lived maybe a block, a couple of blocks away. And my father had a shop right on the corner 
four-way stop sign. So you saw pretty much everybody coming and going. And Mr. Daly would go by on a regular basis in his station wagon. If he didn't have fishing poles and a canoe on top, he had his bird dogs in the back. Mm -hmm. And I'm exaggerating a little bit because certainly the man was an attorney and he had a job. But he always found time to get out in the woods and we'd go hunting, we'd bird hunt at certain times of the year, or we'd go fishing ourselves. But it just seemed like Mr. Daly was always on his way to doing something exciting. And so I said, well, if that's what attorneys do, then by <laughs> golly, I want to be an attorney uh, for, for whatever. And with that in mind, I went to the University of Arkansas. And so I majored in English. And the reason that I majored in English, which which was really a great major because I've been able to write and express myself well, uh, you know, in, in subsequent years. But and I took Latin, actually, the, <laughs> thinking that a couple of years of Latin, you know, would be the moa massa mata. I don't know, you know, lawyers, you know, <laughs> the law, the legal, whatever you need Latin, which I took instead of Spanish, which probably these days Spanish would be a lot more, let's say, usable. Yeah. If you took a vacation down in Mexico you know, than Latin because, well, you don't use Latin, right? you know, pretty much regardless of who you are or where you are, or who you're talking to, except that, and I've traveled a little bit in Europe and I do find that with that Latin background, there are some languages, um, Italian, French to a less, lesser degree, but, and I actually took French in high school, but the point is that you can kind of figure out, and even, even Spanish, you can figure out some words that are relative, you know, that mm -hmm. relate to, relate to Latin, you know, kind of a base, a base language. Yeah. But, uh, well, steer me however you want. I mean, I can, I can throw well, me a subject. I, I like, I, about honestly, <laughs> I like the, uh, I like where you're going. I wanted to, um, you know, I did as much research as I could before, before the podcast. Honestly, there's, there, I didn't come up with as much as I thought I would. Um, but it, it did seem, like one interesting thing that I, that I did come up with, and because I'm a television producer and have been on a lot of different networks myself, I found it really an interesting piece of information that I saw was that your show, Wild America, has been, was, was the most viewed show on PBS. That's, and that's, yes, a, that's yes, according that's, to Wikipedia. So I, I'm asking you if that's the case. That's quite correct. And there's a reason for that. Um, and it was, uh, I'll, I'll blame myself, ha, ha credit myself, um, with that. Um, the way, and, uh, sorry if I'm talking down to people, but probably a lot of people understand, realize that when you produce a television program, you license it to somebody. Mm -hmm. And when you license it, that means you're going to give them the right to show it and they're going to give you money in exchange. And hopefully they'll give you enough money to pay for making it and to also pay for going to do another one. Mm -hmm. That being the, the crux of the matter. Well, in the case of PBS, which is where Wild America, the series, ended up first, um, I'll even come back to the networks, but first I'll tell PBS because that's a big success story. PBS, when you licensed a series to PBS way back then, it was 1981, um, and you, you'll see that I interrupt myself sometimes just to throw in a bit of inf additional information. That was the second year I went to a PBS convention. The first year I didn't sell it. I'll come back to that. I'll, I'll finish the part about the rights first, and then I'll come back to the, the story of wild America and how it happened. 
But as far as the rights were concerned, the producers for PBS would license it, and their standard was four runs over three years. And so let's say, for example, we did the Wild America series, we did 10 half hours a year on PBS for 11 years, 11 seasons. Um, I did one more a year after that, year 12, uh, was out of my own time, pocket, whatever. But the point is that the PBS license was four runs over three years, and that's what most of the other, I, I think it's fair to say all of the other producers did. It was just, you know, whatever, that, that was just par for the course. Well, my logic was, well, wait a second. You know, that means that, you know, there's 364 days a year when nobody's going to be showing that particular program mm -hmm. about a moose or a duck or a possum or whatever it is, which seemed like a waste to me for two reasons. One is, and, uh, you know, going, I bounce around some, way back in Sunday school, <laughs> one of the things that we taught, you know, one of the things they lear we learned was, don't hide your candle. Don't hide your light under a basket. Hmm. You know, I just remember that as a kid. Don't hide your light under the basket. Let it show. You know, let it out. Let it show. And I was going, well, okay. To me, that means that I don't want to hoard. I don't want to restrict. I don't want to say, no, no, no. You only get to show it one time. I can understand the pure and simple logic for that. The pure and simple logic for that is you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to show it too many times. You don't want, uh, you know, the audience to go, oh, my gosh, there's that program I've seen again. You know, oh, I've, I already saw that one. You know, show me something new. And I understand that perfectly. But with that in mind, a year was a long time to wait mm -hmm. <clears throat> to show that particular program again. <clears throat> um, as an aside, what I will say is the Wild America series was and is 10 half-hour episodes each year. Mm -hmm. So year one for PBS, we did 10. Year two, we did 10 more. So then they're showing 20. Year three, we did 10 more. So then they're showing 30. Year four, we did 10 more, you know, et cetera, 10, 10, 10, 10. So at the very end, it was 110 um, episodes, 10 new and 100 reruns the previous, previous years. So the point of the matter is that as a producer, um, egotistically, proudly, uh, light not under the basket. Uh, I said, no, no, that's crazy. You know, no, four runs in three years. No, heck no. Sh show the socks off of them. Show the pants off of them. Show them any darn time you want. Show them morning, noon, and night for all I care based on your programmer's needs. Mm -hmm. And boy, oh boy, did they. Yeah. And that's really the long and the short of it is that there were, there were times, and this was really probably in the, in the mid eighties, there were times, and maybe more other times, but but when we have those numbers, four hundred and fifty million, four hundred and fifty million views of a Wild America episode in a week. Wow, four hundred and fifty million. That's incredible. I mean, it's impossible. We we it's don't we don't have that now. Like, no good. Well, if someone, if, if, you know, probably the highest rated program on television, I'm going to make a wild guess. What? 100 million viewers. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you know, pick, pick your favorite program, pick your most popular program. I'd have to make a guess out of 320 million people in America, there's probably a hundred million would be a gigantic, whatever that Nielsen rating would be, mm -hmm. um, you know, viewership yeah. of that program. But keep in mind, 
when we did the Predators, which was April of 1977, that was a one. This was before PBS and Wild America. We did the Predators in April of 1977. Robert Redford narrated it. It was on prime time on NBC, and we had a 26 share wow. of that, give or take 100 million people at that time. It's probably more than that now, but that's why that number you know, uh, pops into my head of the, of the viewership in America. So give or take, we had a 26 share of everybody watching television for that hour for the wild. I'm, I'm sorry, not wild. I misspoke for the predators, uh, one hour special on NBC narrated by Robert Redford. Um, it's probably 7 PM on a Thursday night. As I recall, the point of that being that, that, um, the multiple broadcasts and, and usage of wild America by the PBS stations. And I think I'm correct in saying at that time, there were about 260, maybe 265 PBS stations. Um, I could go into how that gets licensed and which is an interesting story. It was back then. Um, so those stations then would literally have the wild America episodes. And as I said, growing 10, 20, 40, mm -hmm. 60, more and more, you know, at their disposal, and they would show them at 9 or 10 a.m. Right. They'd show them at noon, lunchtime, 12 or 1. They'd show them in the afternoon when the kids got out of school, 3 or 4. Uh, they'd yep. show them in the evening. Now, keeping in mind, the evenings, they really, you know, the, the prime time was a little more restricted. So I think Wild America pretty much aired on Thursdays at a certain time. Then for a while, it aired on Saturdays and Sundays at a certain time. But they weren't showing it, uh, you know, like, they weren't stripping it, which mm -hmm. is called Monday through Friday, you know, right. seven o'clock, seven o'clock, seven o'clock. Some stations did, but in general, the prime time was more, you know, the, the, the top quality, the brand new PBS stuff. But as I said, what they did then morning, noon and evening before prime time and late at night, they played them like it was one of their most popular series and people wanted to see it, which it was. And they did. Yeah. And so and so the ratings, the feedback of uh, all of that, you know, for the for the individual stations was was terrific. And, you know, Tom, it's funny. I've, I've got a lot of cute little isms, whatever. <laughs> and uh, and one of my isms is and this this goes back to, you know, the, the, the country boy from Arkansas who didn't know that well, he didn't know what he didn't know. But he didn't know that he could ever do such a thing until he just by golly did it. Um, and what I say is, you know, it's pretty amazing when you think about what we did. We filmed American wildlife, mm -hmm. all of it, frogs, snakes, mice, birds. Yeah, there were eagles and there were moose and there were grizzly bears and there was all this stuff. But there were bunny rabbits and squirrels and every kind of little bird and hummingbirds and salamanders and stuff. Let's face it. I mean, Wild Kingdom and Jacques Cousteau and Walt Disney, none of them were putting salamanders on television. Right. None of them were putting grasshopper mice, the so-called killer mice, on television. Uh, they just weren't. Right. And, no, I mean, and, it was a whole new <laughs> a whole new thing. I mean, and that's that's what I found was was interesting about about yours. I mean, for 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 some reason I remember mountain lions, 
grizzly bears and like mountain lions in the snow. I remember that as a as something that really stuck with me. Just even as a kid, just like how in the world did he film that? Like that just well, seems... and those are those are power the powerful predators or the bighorn rams, right. kind of like yeah, my, the rams exactly or whatever. Boom, the bighorn butting heads or moose fighting or yeah, you know, a bear roaring. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong, they're dramatic and they're incredible and they're powerful sure. and they're amazing. But the point is, all these other little critters were all equally fascinating right. when we got into filming them. So anyway, what I, you can see I interrupt myself and I'll go off, but then I'll come That's back right. where I started. And where I started with that was, was it basically, wait a second, American wildlife, people love animals, wildlife, outdoors, you know, people fish, people hunt, people bird watch. People love looking at a deer with a baby fawn in their backyard. You know, it's very exciting. It's primal love instinct. American wildlife for an American audience on television. Why the heck didn't somebody think of that before me? <laughs> Wild Kingdom is traveling all over the world. Jacques Cousteau is traveling all over the ocean. Walt Disney, in fairness, they did a couple of fabulous films, Vanishing Prairie. Was it was one of their feature films, which was terrific. Living Desert was one of their feature films, which was terrific. But in general, then when the new programming came around, and not to give them a hard time, but you know, uh, Disney was <clears throat> busy doing Lefty the Dingaling Links hmm. and Ida the Offbeat Eagle, <clears throat> uh, and they were doing programs that were, let's just say, more popularized, more humanized. The word is anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the animals with little human voices and little human stories. And, right. you know, they got their wife and their kids. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. And don't get me wrong, Walt Disney. That's coming back. Man. That's coming film. back. There's a there's a uh, there's a popular one right now on Netflix. I can't stand it. It's uh, it's like that. It's like these human voices on these <clears throat> animals and they try to make jokes and it's terrible. I, I don't like it at all. Keep in mind. Keep in mind. Let me criticize myself while I'm criticizing others. We did um, after the 120 half hours in the Wild America series, we did in conjunction with King World, who was at the time producing uh, Oprah and Inside Edition. Uh, King World was very successful in licensing one hour versions of the Wild America specials. Hmm. So there's 120 half hours in the Wild America series. And there's also a dozen, 12 one hour specials. Those specials were produced. Some of them we produced before. The Man Who Loved Bears, which uh, which uh, was narrated by both Will Gear and Henry Fonda, mm-hmm. and also The Predators, narrated by Robert Redford. Those ended up with the so-called Wild America 12 one-hour specials. But also what we did was we produced some others. We produced uh, Dangerous Encounters, Grr, and Everything Attacks. Uh, we produced... Uh, um, uh, tender times, cute babies, etc. Um, and we produced we produced uh, one. Wild Wings was about birds, but we produced one, which was called Wacky Babies. Mm-hmm. And we did use a comedy troupe voices, uh, male and female, you know, men and women, guys and girls, voices. Um, 
And it was wacky. <laughs> it was, you know, like I said, wacky babies. Oh, look out. You know, oh, it's kind of, you know, he got me. Oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, it, it was, it was, it is. It's, it's a, it, kids love it. Yeah. But it, but it was far from, let's just call it biology. It was far from, uh, let's say, scientific. Um, it was definitely done in a, in a anthrop- anthropomorphic manner um, <clears throat> for that purpose right. to, to, to amuse uh, humor, silly, goofy. <clears throat> um, we didn't do that very much, but, but mea culpa, you know, we did that. We did that one. And, and uh, so I'm just kind of rambling here, but yeah. the point well, was, go, go ahead. Well, I want to ask you, um, like yeah. you, you mentioned that, that you really bucked the trend of, of, of producers giving someone the right to, to run something, uh, as many times as they wanted to. And obviously it was, it was successful for PBS and they, they obviously were selling a lot of commercials and a lot of people were watching now, you know, looking back on that, was that a good decision financially? Was that a good, did that, if you were to, you know, you, nobody has a crystal ball and you said like, you don't know what you didn't know. And so you just thought you wanted to shine your light everywhere. When you look back on that, um, was that a, was that a good decision or, uh, did that, did that play a part in the future things that you did or, or what? Well, uh, let me ramble. <laughs> certainly, certainly it was a great thing because PBS had a, a vast audience. Right. And when you have a lot of people following a series and calling up and, you know, the way PBS works, you know, they would have, they would have, you know, their fundraiser drives. So people calling up and saying, hey, I like that Wild America thing. Here's my $10. Here's my donation. Here's my membership. Keep them coming. Uh, there's no question whatsoever that the popularity of Wild America is the reason that it was on PBS for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what what how that worked was that uh, the, there were uh, um, 11 years in the series, which were done for PBS, that were on PBS. And then they extended the rights several more years, I think three or four more years. Um, and, uh, you know, and and to show them, but also because when they bought year 11, they got three years you know, usage rights <clears throat> from it. Um, and, and I'm not shy about saying this, you know, films are very expensive to make. Yeah. You know, these numbers will kind of boggle your mind, <clears throat> but still relative to big time network television, you know, a million an hour or whatever. Right. Um, we were, we were peanuts. I mean, the, the first year of wild America was programs that I'd already produced. Sorry, Tom. I'm just, no, no, go, it, go, all these, we're all, all good, man. Tied, Keep going. It, okay. It all ties together. <clears throat> uh, let me back up a little bit. I got out of college, university of Arkansas, the degree in English in 1970 and started making wildlife films. I, I had a, an allowance from my father. I did some part-time jobs. I'm a welder. I'm a hot rod builder. I'm a lot of different things. Worked in Fort Smith plywood factory, a $49 a week take home pay. <laughs> um, but the point of the matter back as a welder, Heliarch, Heliarch welder, yeah. $49 a week take home pay. <laughs> um, but I had a $350 a month <clears throat> allowance from my father. <clears throat> Many years later, I paid him back. I think it was 190,000. Many years later, and that funded his funded my parents' retirement. But the point of the matter is that that I was scraping by. 
And what we did was we made uh, films, my brother, Mark, and I, um, some other friends uh, working with us, C.C. Lockwood. He's now a successful photographer down in Louisiana. David Huey was a cameraman with me, Ginger Catherines. She was my only female cameraman hmm. ever. And because, well, there's one other that worked a little bit, but but basically there just weren't female cameramen. And if I found one, I hired her and, and we did. And she did a fabulous job. She did uh, she did the Mustang films. Mm. Um, she, she was a great horse lover. But the point of the matter is that what we were doing back then, what I always did, I, we never, we never, this, the, the terminology is weird. We never filmed in video. Okay. Film. We never shot. We never shot in video. We filmed in film. Right. Real, real film, 16 millimeter. Boy, oh boy, much more difficult. The equipment is much heavier. The, the process is much more complex. You can't look at what you get right there at the time. You, you film it and you send it into a lab and you wait to get it back to see if it's good or not. And, and in the case of some, it's, it's, it was maddening. Mm-hmm. You would set up a camera and it would be on a rail and it would be an, 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 called an intervalometer and it would take a frame, click, move a little bit, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever, click, click. So there are 24 film frames in one second, mm-hmm. 40, 40 film frames in a foot you know, foot long piece of film, literally hold it up. And, and depending on how many clicks you did on your intervalometer, the clouds would go, if you clicked one frame a minute, they'd be speeded up 24 times. So the clouds would be very beautiful. You know, it's 24 times. If you, if you, if you clicked, you know, uh, uh, you know, one, one, I'm sorry, I misspoke. If you clicked like one frame a second, Mm-hmm. The clouds would be beautiful. If you click one frame a minute, boom, you know, the clouds right. are gone. Right. Normally it was one frame every five, 10, 15, 30 seconds <clears throat> to get a certain speed of the clouds. And of course, clouds move different speeds um, and different clouds move different speeds, et cetera, et cetera. The point of the matter is that you would shoot that with a camera and you would shoot any number of those. And one individual who worked with me for many years, Greg Hensley, uh, Greg was primarily our time-lapse guy. He would go film the mud cracking. He would go film the flowers opening. Um, he would go film the sunrises and sunsets. I'd go, Greg, we're, we're doing this otter film up in New York. So go shoot five or 10 sunrises, five or 10 sunsets. Try to put some rivers and lakes in the scenes. And... Uh, See you in a month. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, speaking of Greg's, another individual, Greg Hayes, is still a very, very successful uh, uh, veterinarian. The Arapaho Animal Clinic in uh, Boulder. He has two locations. I'll give him. I'll give him a pitch. I'll give him. Hmm. A, here's my here's my sponsor pitch for my great great lifelong friend Greg Hayes, Arapaho Animal Hospital in Boulder. He would help me out if there was ever an animal, an animal was injured or wounded, or you, you know, w- which. We did. I mean, I'll admit, you know, we, we would, if we found, if we found something with a broken wing, we would film it and mm-hmm. then fix its wing right. and then turn it loose. One thing that we filmed one time, I know I'm bouncing around. Hopefully this is still interesting and I'll get back to what I was starting sure. to say, um, was a poor will. 
Now, it's kind of like a whippoorwill, but mm-hmm. it's a poor will. It's just bird. You can see them flying around in the sunset, long wings, whatever. The crazy thing is these birds hibernate, hmm. hibernate like some mammals do. And so some people near where I lived in the town of Aspen, Colorado, found this bird full torpor, you know, just like it was dead. It was asleep. It just didn't move in the winter and brought it into a wildlife facility that is in the Aspen area. And then they called me and they said, Marty, this is kind of crazy. We got a poor will here and it's hibernating. It's just, it's plumb asleep. So we're going to keep it cold. We're not going to bring it in and warm it up and wake it up in the middle of winter, but maybe you want to film it. Okay, fine. So uh, retrieved this sleeping, hibernating poor will, took it back to the location where it had been, put it in this little crack in a rock and filmed it. <laughs> and that's, and that's our poor will sequence. And, you know, as often as not, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, that's a way that, that's a way that we would film some sequences is come up with an idea and then try to, you know, create that. And if you've got a poor will in a rock, fine, put it back in the rock and show it, you know, sitting there. So sitting there. when, when you did that deal, um, that's going to be like a time-lapse thing over, over the rest of the winter, watching no, what this bird will do, or what are you doing? We, we just, as, as I recall, I, I think I handled the bird, and I showed actually, maybe a little rude, but I kind of opened its mouth. They've got this big mouth because they fly around and catch insects yeah. on the wing. And uh, no, we just, we didn't show it going to sleep. We didn't show it waking up. We just showed it hibernating in this, in this location. That particular, I'm sorry, because I was talking about time lapse and then I jumped off yeah. on the poor wheel because, because the, the point of that, well, I'm just bouncing around. The point <laughs> of that is it popped into my mind. But <clears throat> so, so we would shoot uh, um, intervalometer scenes and even more, let's just say, not painful necessarily, but more, more involved, we would shoot slow motion scenes. And so the film would go through the camera 24 frames a second. The sound I make is, you know, one 24th of a second, you know, for each one, 24 frames a second. When you speed that up, so a bird is flying, you speed it up to 48 frames a second. You speed it up to 100 frames a second. You speed it up to 300 frames a second, you know, for the, to slow down the bird. So in other right. words, film's going through, going through, going through. Oh, man, how much did that cost? Right. Well, a lot, a yeah. lot, because we just shot 300 frames a second, which is 12 times faster, so that a 10-minute roll of film doesn't even last one minute. And, and the point I'm making on all this, the intervalometer, the slow motion, is that when we shot film, and I rarely do anymore, but I'd love to have a project, but, you know, just doesn't really happen. Um, you would then put it in a, a black bag. You put the camera magazine into a black bag. You stick your arms in. You take it out. You put it in a film can. You tape it up. You ship it off to a film lab. The film lab puts it through a big machine and develops the film, the whole film. Then they make a print of the whole film, and that's your work print. So you got your original and your work print, and you take the work print, and you chop it all up, 
on it, you have a machine with a screen on it. There are several different kinds of machines. One is a movie scope. It's a small one. Um, back then we had movieolas, which were bigger. And then we have Steenbecks, which are bigger still. And I even have a Steenbeck eight plate with two pictures side mm. by side. You run the work print through there, back and forth, back and forth. You look at it, you look at it. Meanwhile, the work print is getting scratched. It's getting dirty. It's getting cut with literal scissors. It's getting taped together with literally a kind of scotch tape with little sprocket holes mm -hmm. in it. It's getting projected and forward and back and this and that, and it's scratched and it looks like crap because your original negative is over in a can. You haven't messed with it. By the time you get done chopping this work print all to smithereens to the right time, you then put it through what's called a synchronizer and side by side, the work print scene that you've edited with great effort, snip, 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 you cut and splice your original to match the work print. <laughs> and even a little more complicated than that, you have two rolls of, okay, so you have a roll of original and a roll of work print. You chop up the work print. Then you conform, you match the original to the work print physically, physically, mm -hmm. snip, snip, snip. Then you got that roll, except for one small problem. You can't put it through a projector. I'm, I'm sorry, not a really a projector, a, a printer. Can't put it through a printer because you would see the splices. Right. Because when you cut, when you splice it, there's a line. You literally scrape off the emulsion, put the two together in a machine called a hot splicer, a Mayer Hancock hot splicer. You put a strip of cement on there, liquid cement with a little brush. You close the hot splicer. It cooks for about a minute. Bingo. There you go. Wow. Now, wait a second. <laughs> but to not see the splices, you have scenes one, three, five, and seven, and you have scenes two, four, six, and eight on two different rolls of film. But in between, after scene one, you have to put in a piece of black leader the same length as scene two. Huh. Into, so, so you got your, it's called AB roll. Duh. Your A roll is scenes one, three, five, seven. Your B roll is scenes two, four, six, eight. And so, so the A roll would be scene one, then a piece of black leader, the same length as scene two, which is on the B roll. Then scene three, then a black leader, the same length as scene four, which is on the B roll. So finally you get your A roll done. Then you do the same thing with your B roll. When you run those two, the A roll and the B roll through a printer, what you get is, your film print, especially since you've taken those scenes and either there's butt cut or they're overlapped. Mm -hmm. And that scene is overlapped 12 frames or 24 frames or 48 or 96, one second, two seconds, four seconds, and that's your dissolve. Mm -hmm. One scene is still there and it starts going away as the other scene comes over it. And that so you're seeing two scenes at the same right. time, middle of the dissolve. And then, and then that disappears. Wow. Now, having described that whole long-winded, difficult AB roll process, nobody does that anymore. No. Because you would do that if you were going to print from it and make film prints from it, which pretty much nobody does anymore because what you do is you just take your scenes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You then take all of those you put them onto video, and then you add the, the the butt cuts in video, in a video edit on a big screen, punching all kinds of buttons, or you overlap them in video, 
And that's how it's done these days. So in the olden days, it was AB roles, then it became A roles. And now to a great degree, depending on your project, some people would just take their camera roll. It's more expensive, a little harder, but they would just take their camera roll, put the whole thing on video and edit it in video. Mm-hmm. We never did that. We always edited in film on a machine of Moviola or Steenbeck. We always edited in film. Then we conformed the original film to match the edited work print. Um, and the value of that is you have a vault can, and in that vault can is the film. It's scenes one, two, three, four. It's not like you have 50 400 foot rolls. Right. But if you ever wanted to do anything with them again, you would have to go find those scenes again. Right. right. Which would be a big. So sorry if that's getting a little. No, no. A little well, well, what's interesting, uh, I mean, it's very interesting to, to me who makes television shows in the modern era. And, and I didn't necessarily start in the modern era. We certainly weren't doing linear editing like what you're talking about, but we were using crappy beta cams that cost $100,000 that you wouldn't use to hold, you wouldn't use to prop the door up. Uh, open today, you know, your iPhone does a thousand times better than the stuff that we were, we were using that, that you had to, I mean, we were having to mortgage our house to get that camera. And, and now today, everybody, everybody is walking around with a better camera in their pocket. So it's interesting to see that, but what we, what kind of led to that story, I think, is that we were talking about the decision to, to give all of the rights and you were talking about numbers that would boggle your mind and making films is very, very expensive. And and you just illustrated very well why, I mean, the amount of work that it would take to do that is unbelievable and it would be very, very expensive. uh, Physically consuming, uh, you know, there's no question whatsoever that uh, the, the cameras that we had, the, the tripods that we had were he- much, much heavier, much, heavier. much more complex. The film, you know, I mean, you got an ice chest full of film and you got to keep it cool, you know, and they figure out a way, not, not refrigerated cool, but you know, you couldn't let it just go, go right. making this. Home. But anyway, the, the part of the reason that I was telling that story really about the, about the, the uh, time lapse and the motion and the, uh, the slow motion we didn't really know what the heck we had filmed for maybe weeks. So right. and if we were in the field, maybe a month or months. And, and that was always a disadvantage because since you never knew what you had, you probably had to shoot too much to make sure that you got it. And so, so we went with a, a, a called a shooting ratio. The ratio was we probably filmed 20 or 25 times more film than we needed. Mm to make sure that we had enough scenes. Part of that was uh, to get a head and a tail on a scene. Here's a hawk sitting on a tree, you know, and you turn on your camera and you're looking at it and you're waiting for it to stretch or look around or maybe get tired of you sitting there looking at it. And, but the point is that, you know, you're, you're trying to anticipate uh, without yelling at it or clapping your hands. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. In which, in which case, if I'm watching television and I and a hawk is on a tree, oh, and it flies off like that, you know, oh, they scared it off. They did that. Somebody mm-hmm. did that. Some blankety blank jerk, you know, clapped his hands or hey, you know, whatever to get the hawk to fly, or an eagle or what, or the heron standing beside a river, you know, whatever it might be. 
if you've looked at birds enough, you can definitely see sure. whether that bird was startled, frightened, yeah. scared away, or whether it was just, oh, okay, I've had enough of this. I think I'll go someplace right. else. Right. Um, the point I'm getting at film-wise is you turn on your camera. And actually, some of our cameras were silent. The, the more expensive, the Airflex BL, which meant blimped. Um, the Airy SR is an HSR. If it's not in slow motion, it's it's pretty darn quiet right. for, for wildlife to not be able to hear. Some of the older cameras that we used, Photosonics in particular, you know, you would you could hear it running 20, 30 yards away, and that would you know be a distracting factor for wildlife. And and forget about the Photosonic, which with which we often shot uh, up to 500 frames a second, which is, you know, 24 frames to 500 frames. You can do that math easy enough. It slowed down 20 times. Um, a sweet spot was about 300, was 100 frames a second, slowed down four times, or 300 frames a second, slowed down 12 times. Also, when you shot that slow motion, you needed more light. Mm-hmm. So you had to have a camera with with a lens that would open up the f-stop more to let more light in, and it can only let in so much light. So, for example, on a cloudy day or a dark day, you could not shoot 500 frames a second. You just mm-hmm. couldn't. Right. You might almost barely be able to shoot 300 frames a second. Um, and there's another thing. I know I'm, I'm bouncing around. Hopefully, people find this of interest. But but uh, there's another thing, which is when you look through the camera lens. You have to focus. Right. And so there's an animal or a bird and depend, maybe it's in flight. And depending on what it is that you're trying to film it doing, um, you might have to follow that action. Even more than that, you might have to focus. There it goes. Here it comes. There it goes. Here it comes. In other words, th- there's a focal plane and with a long lens, that's shorter and shorter and shorter. As probably most people know about photography. You know that. Yeah. No, I mean we're we're definitely following you. Um, That what was the power source? Oh, these these were the the battery operated. Yeah. And so you would take you would take obviously the batteries weren't as good as we have today. So what? Well, some of them would be yeah, Tom. Some of them would be on the Air SRs. They were they were more modern cameras, and the battery would be. What am I saying? The size of a hamburger, the size of a big right, hamburger, right? Yeah. The size of a of a chunk, not as big as a brick, but uh, but you know, definitely smaller than a pack of cigarettes, mm-hmm. not that I smoke or whatever. Um, but some of the cameras, like the Photosonics, which did, were a little bit more dated and which sucked a lot more juice, we had a thirty volt battery belt. <laughs> so this belt went around your waist, and it had about six or eight uh, batteries on it. It probably weighed about 15 pounds. I mean, it was like putting a, you know, a scuba dive right. a weight belt, right. a scuba dive weight belt, think of, around your waist. And then the cable would run up and stick in the camera. Of course, you had to have the battery and the cable and the camera all together as right. one package. Uh, that would be the Photosonics. Um, <clears throat> the Aeroflex cameras, some of the older ones were similar to that. The battery would be off board, so-called. The more modern, the battery was on board. And like I said, it was, you know, just the chunk size of a small brick, let's call it. <clears throat> um, uh, 
probably the size of one of the first cell phones that I had. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just said the word brick and right. that triggered it in my mind that I had a, I had a Motorola MicroTAC light. Yeah. I had it one was, of those. It was about like it was, that big. And our young daughter called it the brick. Yeah. My young daughter, Hannah would, would call it the brick because as she got older and cameras got small, I'm sorry, I misspoke. As she got older and, and I have uh, phones got smaller um, it was obvious that some of the phones that I had still or had used that she remembered were a heck of a lot larger yeah. than the new the new ones coming along. And, and keeping in mind, at that time, even you had in your vehicle, you had in your truck uh, a CB radio. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and you'd be talking to the truckers going down. We had traveled all over America. You'd be talking to the truckers going down the highway. Yeah, 10-4, good buddy. <laughs> you know, Smokey the Bear is up ahead. Smokey the Bear, obviously, is a policeman. Right. You know, 10-4 is, you know, over and out or, you know, come back or, you know, all the all the, all the the lingo, which to tell you the truth, I kind of miss. Um, if you miss it very much, watch uh, watch the, the the old movie with uh, Burt Reynolds and Sally Fields. Right, Smokey, Smokey, Smokey and the Bandit, Bandit. and Convoy. <laughs> Remember Convoy? Convoy oh, yeah. was oh, Convoy Bob was uh, what, who who was that? That was uh, uh, Christopher Chris Christopherson was in that. I think. And, and you know, and speaking of speaking of uh, of uh, you know the the old CB radios. One time I was driving from uh, Colorado to Arkansas from a visit back home in a heck of a blizzard right there by Raton, New Mexico, between Raton and Amarillo, uh, that flat country. You can get a heck of a blizzard. And there's a big, a big mountain there. It's actually an old volcano. It's called Mount Capulin, Mount Capulin National Monument. And I'm driving one night and two separate, not just one, two separate individuals were stranded. One was a one was a, a female, one lady, and the other was a several was a couple ladies in their car. Well, where are you? Well, what side road? Well, what the heck? Well, you're stuck. Oh, what? I'm driving. It's ten o'clock at night. It's a howling blizzard. They are not going to have a fun night, right? Whatsoever. So I'm okay. All right, I'll co- go pick them up and haul them into town and drop you know leave their car. Their car is you know beyond stuck. And I always have driven trucks. International travel all, GMC, you know, Yukon XL, whatever, four-wheel drive, chains, you know, whatever it takes. I'm, I'm, nothing has ever slowed me down um, weather-wise. The point is, CB Radio picked them up, delivered them, kept on my way down mm-hmm. the highway to Arkansas. Who knows what might have happened, but had they run out of gas, had they been in their car all night long, um, I don't know what, I can't remember what kind of clothing they had or jackets or whatever, Yeah, but I remember it was a howling blankety blank blizzard. Good thing for the CB radio. Were, yep. CB, <laughs> CB radio. There's no place. Hey, no, Marty, no let me ask you this. Um, sure. With with all of the different uh, gear that we've talked about, there was obviously big challenges with the, the weight of this equipment and, the, you know, filming on film. Uh, I did one fishing show on film and I, it was really tough because they they had to choose what they were going to shoot. Video guys just shoot all day. You never miss anything, right? right. Yep. And then the yep. the film guys, it was a whole different world. And I realized within the first 15 minutes, I was like, oh, boy, like this, this is a different deal. Like I've never shot on film, probably won't ever shoot on film again because – it's hard to shoot a fishing show like this. I can't imagine it would be how easy or hard it would be to shoot a wildlife documentary, especially of the quality that you managed to get. But the stuff was heavy. Um, 
it was different. Today, we've got GoPros. We've got time-lapse things that can do that so easily. You've got a GoPro that has a battery that'll last all day. It's the size of, you know, it's a tiny little thing. Um, what do you think was the most challenging thing that you ever filmed, whether that was a salamander or a grizzly bear? I, I mean, what do you think, just as you remember, what do you think was one of the most challenging things you tried to document? All, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every last, you know, th- no, seriously. Um, there was a time when my brother Mark and I were at a place called McNeil river in Alaska and m- people may not know the name, but, but they've certainly seen the films. There is a particular river in Alaska on the Alaskan peninsula. You know, you get on a plane at Kodiak or wherever, and you fly over, um, you have to have a permit uh, from the game department. They only allow a certain number of people there at any given time. It's a very limited amount of time. It's the month of August, really, but even less than that, a several-week period when 30, 40, 50 bears, of course, these are big brown bears, mm-hmm. uh, um, Alaskan, which the, the brown bear is just a coastal grizzly. But because they have a really good diet and they have all this, this salmon to eat and, you know, coastal, coastal, uh, you know, habitat, they get big. <clears throat> they get very big. I mean, go sometime to a museum like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and stand beside one of these mounted bears, mm-hmm. you know, 10 feet tall. It'll, it'll, right. give you a, it'll give you a good idea. But this, this opens a door, Tom. I'm going to tell a couple of bear stories. But I'll first answer your question. Um, the reason that was, that was probably the most challenging was because it was a couple of miles, I think maybe two, it might've been three miles from camp <clears throat> to the falls because of the bears literally everywhere. You could not leave any of your equipment there, <clears throat> um, film, lunch, tripod, anything you took, you had to carry it up in the morning, you know, crack a dawn, carry it down in the evening when you were done. And my brother Mark and I had packs that were approaching 200 pounds each. Whoa. Uh, big, you know, cameras had more than one camera with us, tripods, uh, rolls of film, uh, 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 guns, you know, that, that actually uh, I, uh, one of my funny, one of my funny bear charge didn't really charge stories. At, at the time I had a, a, a Ruger 44 Magnum. And I, I had it in a shoulder holster, so that it was right here, you know, under my armpit. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I had on a backpack with, you know, just, I mean, you know, tripods sideways and just, you know, all kinds of all stuff. And actually, the backpack I had designed has a, a swing thing on it with, where a lens fits in, one of my favorite lenses, which is a, a 2.8 Canon, 300-millimeter lens. Not very big, not very heavy, but we had bigger lenses than that that we took along. Um, <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'll finish the weight part first, then I'll get into the gun part. So trudging along from camp to the falls and back every day, we had these hugely heavy, heavy packs and just the simple weight of the gear and the fact that we had to bring it all with us and bring it all back every day was, was more challenging than a lot of times when, oh, I don't know, you got your truck on a back road. And you, you know, you're half a mile off a road and you're filming a moose. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, darn, you know, okay, the, these moose are vocalizing. It's maybe the mating season and the bulls and cows are making a noise. Darn it. 
So you're going to go back to the truck and get your recorder. Right. Maybe you dump off your camera gear and then you take your recorder and you record. Um, to tell one more secret, a lot of people don't realize when we filmed films, they never had sound on them. They just didn't. There are cameras and there are ways with a mag stripe down the side of the film, some old news cameras where you could film the sound at the same time that you were filming, but we never did. Mm. <clears throat> and so you would film the animal, um, open its mouth, no recording of the sound. You would have to record that later. Mm. And when we edited, you would put down a couple of soundtracks, so-called tone or background, just the wind, shh, or underwater. Right. whatever it was, or the room temp. You may not believe this, but a room has a sound right, with right. nothing going on in it. Right. It just, it's got a sound. Th then you would film the specifics, moose, you know, whatever, or whatever it was, or eagle calling, or, well, you'd have a million different bird calls and you'd just stick something in, tweet, 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 whatever. Then, of course, you would put in the narration, word, word, word. You'd put in the music, et cetera, et cetera. The films that we did pretty much had about eight minutes of music and a half hour program, um, about eight minutes of music, about eight minutes of talking. And then there was sound over the whole thing, but there was only about eight minutes. It was in the clear so-called specifics. <clears throat> um, the point of the matter is that you also got a tape recorder, which was a Nagra IS, which was another five or 10 pounds right. with the microphone, <laughs> and all that stuff stuffed in this pack going up and back every day. So, so that was the most challenging from a standpoint of weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, but from the standpoint of weight, W-A-I-T, that was another challenge. And I'll, I'll come back to that after Alaskan bears <laughs> sequences. It took crazy amount of time to get. Once you have it in your mind, you're going to by golly get it. So I got my pistol big I, uh, for those who don't know about killing things. A 44 Magnum is about as big of a gun as you want to shoot. I mean, kaboom. Yeah. It's hard to hold on to it. And let's call it macho. Let's call it overkill. Let's call it uh, dirty, hairy, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, if you're going to, if you need to kill a bear, a you'd be gun. better off with a big old rifle. You'd be better off with a shotgun. You know, no, we didn't kill any of the bears. This was all, personal safety, self-defense. Um, uh, but the point is <laughs> I'm walking along a trail, I'm trudging head down. I'm going back. I'm dog tired. Keep in mind, we'd had bears around us all day. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, one of my scariest, silliest, stupidest bear stories, you see how I interrupt myself and then I always come back. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I do that, but I do. I'm sitting at the blind. It's not a blind. It's just they call it a blind, but that's where you had to be. You're wide open. The bears can see you. And like a genius, I just ate a can of sardines. Okay. <laughs> I opened it up, ate them, and set the can down beside me, behind me, you know, arms, arms length right there. As most of you probably know, and I happen to love sardines, and they're very healthy for you in a lot of different ways. They're very pungent. Yeah. I have friends who don't like sardines because they don't like that fishy smell. Right. They just don't. Well, guess what? Bears have no problem at all with that fishy smell. Yeah, they like and it. And in fact, 
In fact, it turned out that bears actually love that fishy smell of sardines in a can sitting about 12 inches from my little butt right here sitting on the ground. And I'm sitting there and we're looking at the bears or we're filming or I'm messing with gear or whatever. And I smell this horrible smell. And then I feel this hot breath on the side of my face. Whoa. And I slowly turn and there's a brown bear head about, oh, bigger than a basketball. You know, I don't know, beach ball or something. I mean, you know, can't describe. Eyeball, I'm looking out of the corner of my eyeball. Eyeball, nose. About that time he snorts and slobber and boogers kind of fly Whoa. on the side of my face <laughs> like that. Wow. He reaches forward with these claws that are about as long as my fingers. Right. They're probably about three-inch claws. He reaches forward and with one claw hooks the can of that, hooks the edge of that sardine can. He does he 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 doesn't, I'm assuming it was a he, might have been a she. I'm call me sexist. I don't know. It was a big <laughs> stinky thing. I'm saying it was a he. Might have been a might have been a mama bear. There were plenty of those around with their cubs, and they're even more dangerous. Yeah. Hooks with his claw the edge of that sardine can, just very gently, very slowly pulls it back about a foot or so, and then just and starts very slowly licking it out. Wow! Licking the Dang. oil you know, there was out of the out of the sardine can, which took him a long time, probably not as long as it felt like. But but the point of the matter is, I'm sitting here pretty much petrified, and I know that it could have chomped me, killed me, attacked me, whatever, you know, easily by then <clears throat> had that been the case. So I'm not scared, scared, but I'm also not feeling all that comfortable. Um, so that was the closest I've ever been to a hungry, wild grizzly brown wow. bear. Dang. And, and, and to extend that story, uh, actually to extend bear stories, I'm trudging down the path, pretty much looking down, looking at my feet, you know, leaning forward into the pack, trudging along, trudging along, and look up. OMG. You know, here's a mama bear. Oh, no. With cubs looking at me, coming down the path the other direction. We're probably 10, 15 feet apart. Whoa. I stop, look up wide-eyed she stops and and i'm going uh oh and so i'm reaching for this gun so i'm going to grab the gun i'm going to take the gun out i'm going to cock it and point it at her just in case you know a bad situation and she wants to try to kill me well i'm theoretically i'm going to stop her from doing that <clears throat> i'm reminded of Speaking of Walt Disney before, I'm reminded of a Mickey Mouse uh, sequence. I can't remember the exact detail, except it was something about a gun tangled up or something. And I think it was a bear. And Mickey was trying to get his gun and he couldn't. Uh, and I'm trying to get my gun and it's all <laughs> my straps and my backpack. And, uh, and and about that time, I just go, OK, this this is just stupid. And and I felt like Mickey Mouse. And I can't, I can't do this well, but Mickey's going Oh he! Oh no! Oh he! Oh pay no attention! Oh oh, oh that! Oh that gun! Oh no! He! It's not you know. That's nothing. Right. <laughs> it was that. It was a stupid sequence like that because I'm then going. 
Oh, well, uh, sorry, uh, Mama Bear. No, that, oh, pay no attention to this gun here. No, I wasn't going to try to pull it and point it at you. Let me just let me just step off to the side here, and you guys can go on by. I'm so sorry here to, you know, interrupt your evening stroll, whatever. Because by this time, it's probably, I don't know, 10, 11 Dang. o'clock at night. So did you she know, let you go or what? So, oh, no, I, nothing. I, I stepped probably six feet aside. And she came by down the trail, probably six feet from me, you know, big old shaggy rump going by and the cubs, you know, running up behind. Um, keep in mind, that's not really a wilderness experience because these bears are very accustomed to and acclimated to humans. Yeah, but still. Right there. You get a, the, you get you know, a mother bear with cubs. But, oh, no, it's, it was not a good situation. That's not a good situation. But, but I was... You know, not certainly not the first person she'd ever been six feet from. For all I know, it was the sardine bear. Right. Um, but but in any case, uh, here maybe one more quick McNeil bear story. <clears throat> we camped in a tent, my brother Mark and I, and the nightly ritual would be you would go into your tent. By this time, it's about midnight. You'd unloaded the cameras, your dog tired and whatever. It was still just about light out. There were maybe another half a dozen tents around then there was a little shack, kind of a cook shack that you could go into. <clears throat> um, pretty much rained about the whole time. Most days it would rain some. Sometimes it would just rain and rain and rain. So you'd be in your tent and everything you owned, include sleeping bag, clothes, everything was, if not soaking wet, <laughs> damp. Yeah, Didn't really get cold, but the, but the damp was was uncomfortable. And you would crawl in and lay in bed, and then you would kill the mosquitoes <laughs> on the tent. The mosquitoes, you got in the tent. Yeah, they came with you. Up, and then you would kill these mosquitoes that were inside the tent with you before you before you went to sleep. Right. And they, and they were, you know, uh, biting on you all night long. And the story that I was going to tell, the tent story that I'm going to tell, um, so we're in one night we kill the mosquitoes. We're laying in bed. And then, and then we hear this disturbance from a guy in a tent nearby is maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away. Um, kind of muffled yells for help. Like, what the dang, we unzip, we look out a big full grown bear had sat on the side of his tent and was sitting on his head. Oh, man. <laughs> so, he's in, so he's inside the tent. The bear sat on the side of the tent, completely collapsed the tent around this guy, onto this guy, on his head. <clears throat> he's kicking and whatever and hitting and whatever, trying to get, well, you know, our first uh, inclination was to laugh, which we did. <laughs> and um, And our second inclination was to, not crawl out of our tent to try to shoo the bear away. You know, that, that was it. Uh, we, I think we unzipped it and threw a boot at it or something like that. And, you know, maybe she said, hey, get out of here, get bear, get, and something like that. And, uh, and so it, it finally did get up and lumber off of him. He was not injured <laughs> or wouldn't be telling the story, laughing about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty interesting uh, uh, McNeil River moment. Dang. So any of you ever want to go to McNeil River, you contact the Alaskan Game Department early in the year. I mean, early. I think it's like maybe April. 
and you put in an application. Um, I'm pretty sure it's still a lottery. It was back then. Um, and you have to put in the lottery and get lucky. Um, we were actually filming at the time for ABC, um, kind of American sportsman. We were actually mm-hmm. filming for a John Denver special called Alaska America's Child that John did. And we, we actually did several other John Denver specials after that. But this particular one was being done by uh, John Wilcox, who's still a friend of mine, lives uh, in, the, in Aspen these days. He at the time was in New York working with Kurt Gowdy and ABC American Sportsman. Mm-hmm. And he was the uh, producer, coordinator, whatever, on the on the project when we went to Alaska, went to McNeil that that one time. But but anyway, the point of the the point of that whole story was that um, if you want to go to Alaska and go to McNeil River and you get lucky in the lottery, you can do so. You can go. I, I don't think it costs anything or maybe not much, except, you know, your plane ride is going to be a pretty penny. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. McNeil River. There are other places like Brooks Lodge. Brooks River Lodge, I believe, is what it's called, where we also were, were there and we're filming. It's fairly near uh, the McNeil River. It's more open to the public. Um, and uh, and I I'm, may have, times may have changed. This was a good long while ago. Um, that you may be able to go there without uh, without a specific uh, lottery permit. But anyway, th- so those are wonderful bear stories from Alaska, uh, the heaviest equipment that we ever had to carry any great distance. And uh, probably a normal pack is, you know, maybe 50 pounds, which is still heavy. Yeah. You got your camera, lunch, a couple of rolls of film. You know, you're not hauling 10 rolls of film and a tape recorder and, all kinds of that. It just seems that just seems so hard yeah. to do. I mean, we we have to do similar kind of things, but man, I don't know. The equipment sure changed, and and so has the barrier for entry. I mean, the barrier for entry was what one of the things that we talked about right away. Uh, you know, back then, all of this stuff was so expensive and so heavy and so cumbersome, and then then you get to the edit, and my <coughs> gosh, you know, your your work hasn't even begun shooting isn't even the the challenge at that point it's like okay now we have these things and then you went through that whole editing process which seems incredibly laborious so well with film with film of course right you you try your best to edit in the in the camera right you say okay we got a wide scene all right now we need to zoom into the whatever subject is okay now we need some cutaways so here's a moose grazing but you know you film it you know head to tail but then you want to go in for the head to see it chewing or whatever you know and then you want to show a scene of another moose looking at this moose you know you just the so-called cutaways right um you know because if if you just have the moose chewing well sometimes it's okay to zoom in on it and zoom back we literally call that zoom fever Mm -hmm. you know you can you can use it too much and it's and of course, if you're zooming and especially a nice slow zoom, you have to cut before the zoom starts and then you can't cut until after the zoom ends. And so that means that that scene has to be used in a certain length. And that can be a problem when you're trying to edit a film down to a certain time. Yeah. So the, all of those things are going through your head, you know, as a camera person um, when you're shooting film. Uh, as you mentioned, Tom, you know, if you're shooting video, 
turn it on and let her roll. Yeah. You just okay. shoot everything. It's called a slam zoom or bang zoom or whatever. Different people call it different things, you know, just boom, you know, you get it in there, boom, you get it out. Cause you don't care. Right. And, and people probably understand this, but the important thing is, let's say the moose's head is like this and it's chewing. Well, you're, you need to get in there because then if it, if it's head turns, you can't, you can't make that cut. Right. Exactly. So, Anyway, it's all those things are going through your mind at the same time, you know, that you're trying to, you know, slap, sweat and slap mosquitoes and, you know, <laughs> wonder if it's time yet that you can quit for sit down and have some lunch. Right. That's incredible. So uh, how long, when was the last season that you did? Oh, my gosh. Wild America was on PBS from 1981 to 1995 right and then but there then were other that, specials like the john well, denver yeah, specials? Well, positively positively so then after that you know into the 90s and the 2000s we did um we did more of the, we did the one hour specials in conjunction with king world yeah um and one other thing i'll say and this is kind of amazing if there's anyone out there who would like to invest in some wildlife films Boy, oh boy, have I got a deal for you. <laughs> I literally have, and I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you this is the business, this is the way the world works. I have 20 new half-hour Wild America films that I have more than a million dollars invested in that I have been unable to find the money to complete. Mm. So basically, and oh, and these are talking about the film, the, you know, the film, the work print and all that. These were shot in film. They were edited in film. And by our longtime, long term uh, uh, film editor, conformer down in Denver, down in Boulder, and now he's up in Broomfield, uh, Carl Hunsacker. And I love to give these shout outs to these people, give them credit. Carl conformed all the Wild America programs. Maybe he didn't do a few of them. I can't remember the details, but he pretty much did them all, um, which is cutting the work print, cutting the, the original to match the cut work print. Yeah. So the work print's been edited with a kind of scotch tape. The negative thing gets conformed to match that, and it gets spliced together with a hot splicer and cement. Um, and those we have edited the work print, We've added to the original. We still need to put on, as I explained, the sound effects, the music, and the narration. And boy, oh boy, some of these programs are terrific. Hmm. So what, how lot, much would it cost to, to finish them? Um, they were produced at a cost of about $50,000 each. It would probably cost about $25,000 each, 25 times 20, um, is... Uh, is you know, probably $500,000, yeah. which is less than anything these days. I mean, it's less than a one hour, you know, of any pretty much, you know, primetime television, the program that's on. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. There are individuals, and I'm not going to talk them down, but there are individuals who these days shoot in video and they shoot documentary style. And maybe it's someone or a couple of people fishing or hunting and they're walking around with their shotguns and whatever. And they shoot them, you know, they, they film them, video them, not film. I say film, but they mm -hmm. shoot them in video in maybe a day or a few days or maybe a week at the most. And those are probably more like, I don't know what, 
20,000, 10,000, mm-hmm. I don't think 5,000 each to produce. Right. Um, substantially less than shooting in film. Right. Substantially less than, than a shooting schedule, which took many months. Um, one of the programs is about Jeer Falcons. Mm. Um, it's incredible. Uh, one of the programs is about uh, uh, um, the, the uh, good grief. Uh, the, the, my mind is spinning. Um, the 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 Roadrunner Coyote is amazing. Yeah, uh, there's one about Grebes. Uh, I know it's a weird word, weird bird. No, I know G-R-E-B-E. that bird. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever seen some of the old Walt Disney films, there's two of them running side by side on the water. Right. Right. Running across yeah, the water, yeah. the western western grebe. And several other kinds of grebes. Um, actually, the, and the title of that is Graceful as a Grebe. Hmm. Um, and not having not been put together. Um, the grief. One of them is when animals attack. Um, some uh, A guy gets attacked by a deer, a white-tailed deer, whatever. Um, but anyway, uh, 20 half hours. Um, so if you're out there, if you want to uh, invest in some wildlife films, Give me a call. Marty Stauffer, Aspen, Colorado. I've, I've received, probably look it up, Google it. Really, it's MS or Marty at wildamerica.com. Yeah. MS wildamerica.com, Marty wildamerica.com. But I've, I've literally received down through the years, I've received letters to Marty Stauffer, Aspen, Colorado, and I've received letters to Marty Stauffer, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so People got it there. Kudos to the post office yeah. for, for figuring that one out. <laughs> like, but, I know uh, where this yeah. one needs to go. Um, yeah. So uh, as far as like th- you have the unfinished project there, um, are you working on anything else? You know, in a word, kind of, sort of. Um, one of the things we're working on, and this is another website, wildamericaventures.com, Um one of the things that we're working on is uh, licensing the Wild America brand. Um, sounds easy, and that's a project that we're working on. Um, another one that we're working on, like I said, is is the, uh, you know, these 20 new, I'm, I called it Incredible Animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really 20 more Wild America episodes, but the way you license it, if you license them separate, that might, that might need a different title. It's just 20 more Wild America episodes, yeah. Yeah. you know. Um, they're not hosted by me. They could be easily enough. Stand up with a camera. Hello, everybody. Here right. I am. Um, but it's the, you know, it's the subject, uh, you know, the subject. One of them the, the popping into my mind is Jaguar Jungle. Wow. So that one was shot down by a, a Mexico, down huh. in Mexico, uh, some some Jaguar. That's but, cool. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll, they're great. They're great films. But like I said, uh, well, I didn't say, but I will say, um, well, this I shouldn't say this, but this is one of my isms, and I've said it enough that I probably, uh, you know, could be quoted any number of times. You know, I have, like I said, some isms, and one of my isms is the world went from one the <laughs> the world went from four channels to four hundred, from film to video, and from quality to crap. <laughs> well. Sorry, uh, sorry for people out there making wonderful videos. I'm sure there's a lot of them, but you know that being the call it, uh, uh, what, I don't know. It's it's not racist. It's not sexist. I guess it's filmist. Yeah. It, well, it's, you that, know, you, that, that you rude you, film. That's a rude filmist 
comment against video. Well, it's a different world, man. It, it really is. And, and, you know, I don't have a, a, that much experience with it except for shooting that one show on film. And, and it was an awakening. I mean, I was like, wow, that is really hard what those guys are doing. And shooting is hard enough, Tom. Yeah. You know, the shooting, the shooting is hard enough, as you noted. You know, then you get to the editing and you get to the finishing. You got to edit in the sound effects because they don't exist. Right. Gotta, I mean, it just seems so difficult. And in our case, whatever, uh, we we had the budget that we would hire, uh, you know, composers, mm -hmm. some terrific, terrific composers, uh, Patty Carlson, John Murtaugh, uh, Neil Argo. Neil uh, recently deceased, actually, bless his heart. He did the Wild America theme song. Um, and uh, John Murtaugh, he did uh, he did some stuff. Um, and he may, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but um, he would go to London, England and, and record uh, after hours with the London Film, Film, Film Harmonic. <laughs> and uh, that would enable us to afford things that uh, that were not affordable. Uh, right. Union musicians and we use some union mus musicians. We certainly did. Um, and filmed a lot in the United States with union musicians. Um, but in the case of certain instances um, where it was about a, a, a huge orchestra of 30 or 40 uh, individuals, it, it was not in our budget Yeah, to, to do sure. it all. Way. So, Well, what an incredible career that you had. That's uh, it's amazing, really. And, and certainly... Uh, like you said, they used to put those things on after school. I used to come home and watch them after school all the time. And hey, you're, uh, dating, you're dating me. Don't well, you're, easy you're, at, uh, you're dating me too. Like, I was just, I was just a little tyke, Marty, when you were an old man already. <laughs> well, I know. You know that, it's funny. It's it's funny you should say that, Tom, because that that was one thing that. Uh, well, well, here one of my one of my isms, one of my isms, and I'm not always attacking, not attacking, criticizing, joking, teasing other people. One of my isms is, well, um, I'm older and I'm fatter and I'm grayer, but I'm much wiser. Yeah, much there is wiser. that. There is definitely that. And that I've happens. Made, I've made every mistake in the book, you know, and the, and in fact, uh, oh, gosh, I'm just bouncing around. But that's one of the other things that I say. I say um, when we finish filming, we're ready to start. Yeah. The point being, let's say you go to Arkansas and it's a month of April and you want to film wild turkey and you want to film them doing their whole strut and their whole gobble, their whole, you know, Thanksgiving spread and fan and, you know, mating with a hen. And then here's just the eggs hatching and the cute little babies and whatever. Sounds real easy. You say, yeah, let's go. Let's go film wild turkeys. They're cool. No problem. You then find out where you can film them and when you can film them and how you can film them and when not yeah. any of that stuff works. And it's so funny because you'll talk to so many people and they say, Oh no, man, you should have been here last, you know, <laughs> April or oh, same no, with fishing, man. In, you need to come back in August. Yeah. Oh no, this, no, oh, this would be fabulous. Just come back in November right. when the, that sounds going, very you know, familiar to our fishing show. You show up someplace and know, they're like, Oh, you wanted to do what? Oh yeah. yeah that's no, that's, um, that, that was last month. That's uh, right. That okay. Last well, month, oh, what yeah, can we do month, this month? <laughs> last know? month, next month, or, 
Forget about it, Sean. You're not yeah. going to film well, that. Lefty Cray, the famous fisherman, he, he was funny. He had lots of isms, too. And he would always say, the fishing was so good, I thought it was yesterday. Um, yeah. That's, <laughs> that that's was right. what he said all the time. But, uh, man, I, I really am uh, uh, thankful for you coming on the show and, and sharing a lot about your career. And it's really interesting. And, and uh, man, you just produce so much good stuff. Um, can anybody well, watch it can- anywhere? Sorry? Can you watch your stuff oh, anywhere? Oh, I should tell that story. I should tell that story. I should tell that information. Yes. Um, but, but it's on all over the place. I mean, it's it's uh, it's on uh, uh, television, and I'm not even sure. I can't tell you what it is, you know, the time or the channel in a certain place. It's on like 145 television channels all mm-hmm. over America. Look for it. Um, it's on the Internet. Uh for example, Amazon Prime, mm, if you okay. have an Amazon Prime membership, you can watch the Wild America programs there. Um, you can pay a little bit if you don't uh, have that membership, or you can watch them for free if you do. Um, it's being put up now uh, by, by an individual. I'm doing business now with a film distributor, uh, uh, Art Skolpinski of Monarch Films back in New York. Okay. And he's, he's getting them put up on some other places. I, I believe I'm correct in saying Zumo, X-U-M-O, okay. and uh, um, uh, uh, a couple of others, uh, Pluto okay. is another one. Um, so, you know, just look for them. And yes, uh, you know, they're they're on the internet or they're going to be on the internet. Um, and uh, Sling TV, I believe, is another one that he's working on, All right. getting them up on. Um, so, yeah, that being the future. Of, of, or, you know, um, we actually sold... A whole bunch of VHS video. I'm not selling them anymore with King World. Mm-hmm. And then I, Marty Stauffer Productions in Aspen, Colorado, we then sold a great quantity. Thank you, everybody, of uh, DVD sets. Um, but I do know you can go on the internet, in particular eBay, and you can find Wild America video sets for sale or the individual videos. Actually, they have them VHS for sale. Some people still have those machines. I still got a couple of them, uh, or DVD. Uh, you know, on uh, on the internet, also on eBay, you can buy uh, you can buy those the sets or, or the programs. Put out different ways. Topics Entertainment up in uh, the Northwest, up in Seattle area, they did some that were different kind of a packaging from the ones that I did in DVD. Mm-hmm. So yeah, have a look online, uh, eBay in particular. Um, and uh, it's uh, timeless content and, you know, top quality and, you know, enjoy it because right uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a little negative for me to say, but there are some people, there are some groups, the BBC still does some great stuff. Um, that uh, that have some good uh, programming out there, but but by and large, it's not the glory days of wildlife filmmaking anymore, um, for the obvious reasons we talked about. I mean, yeah. I hate to be so crass and monetary, but uh, you know what do they say? It's all about the Benjamins, right? You know, it's all about the money. You have to have you have to have a a large enough audience for the advertisers to sell enough commercials to pay for enough of a budget to go do these programs. And so it comes around and there's more than 400 channels out there. Obviously sure. my, 
4,000, 40,000. Four channels to 400. Well, forget about channels on the internet, you know, uh, which are easier to search, at least wild America. Yeah. You, know, you can find, you can find something to watch, but yeah, the, the, uh, you know, the world has expanded, uh, uh, probably fair to say for better and for worse, better or for worse, I guess. Um, but still, yes, the wild America content is, uh, uh, whatever I'm assuming it'll, it'll be, well, it is still around and, uh, you know, but long after I stop making any programs, even if I make these 20 new ones, one of these days. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, let's just call it high quality programming about American wildlife. Unless I'm mistaken, it's really not getting made on an extensive basis. There's yeah. one here and one there. There's young people doing this and that. Um, and you know, different in different ways. I mean, there's a series on Smithsonian, um, you know, uh, and it's flying over America and it's a, di a different state or a different, you know, subject or whatever, a different uh, geographic locale. Right. Pretty, pretty amazing because the whole thing is aerial. Right. Well, and we would put in a few aerial program, a few aerial, not program scenes, you know, of, of flying over an eagle's nest or flying over, you know, a, a beautiful area. Um, but we never, none of our programs really were all completely aerials. Right. But so, so the, in other words, there are uh, different, different ways to, uh, different ways to, you know, present the same thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah so that's well, a lot of things modern. change and a lot of things stay the same, but, uh, you know, quality always rises to the top. Well, Marty, I think that's probably a good place to end it. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, if anybody has any uh, anything you want to get in touch with him, you got your you put your email out there already. But right. what? give it uh, one more time. Oh, uh, well, the, uh, my initials, Marty Stauffer, MS at wildamerica.com or even easier, Marty, M-A-R-T-Y at Wild okay. America, M-A-R-T-Y at W-I-L-D-A-M-E-R-I-C-A. All right. Right on. Okay. Thanks, Marty. Thanks, I really Tom. appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for allowing me to reminisce uh, the good old days. It's still good, but just, you know, some, some particular funny moments. So yes, thank sir. you so much. Yes, sir. Thank we'll you. do it again. All right. Thank you. See you. Thank you.